In this episode, we're handing it over to you. We will answer some of the questions that you have asked us throughout the year. Welcome to your first home buyer guide, the podcast for first home buyers who want to get it right. I'm Megan and that was Veronica. We're both buyers agents and probably old enough to be your mums. But that's a good thing because between us, we've got over 40 years experience and we are going to share with you bucket loads of stories about avoidable mistakes. Together, we're going to make sure that you get unbiased and real information that you can rely on so you can get where you want to be without missing a step. Now, we've got loads of great tips for you in this episode. And if you'd like more useful tools, head over to the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. There you'll find free checklists that you can download, a free mini course on how to price a property and our where to buy a workshop for only $39. Priceless stuff, really. Bargain. But before we get into the interesting stuff in this week's episode, here's the boring bit, the disclaimer. You of course know that nothing in this podcast is to be taken as personal advice. We always recommend getting the advice of an expert in their field of expertise. Now we've done our very best to ensure that the content is correct at the time of recording, but things change. So check with the relevant government authority or your advisors to get the most up-to-date information. Today, we're handing the reins over to you. You have asked the questions. We've written them down and we've just just put this episode together. So this is 2021 questions that first time buyers have asked us and we are so pleased to be able to answer some general questions that people, other people might have. So let's get into it. Oh, Veronica, my house. Oh, yes, your house. That's um, where I want to be. <clears throat> we are recording this in <laughs> December. We're getting very close to Christmas holidays and Megan is channeling... It's not a house. It's a it's tent a on a deserted a beach. beach. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not known really as a camper, but right now, if I could switch off every piece of technology and turn off from the world, that's where I'd like to be. No more check-ins. No more COVID. No more rules. No more masks. Just put me on. Oh, lovely. On yep. Okay, I could channel that too, I think. Uh, now, so let's get into, while we're still on technology, i.e. we are recording a podcast <laughs> before we go and unplug, we're going to, we're not basically bringing you every question we've been asked in 2021, just a selection of the meteor ones, okay? Mm-hmm. So um, let's kick off with one from James. Do you want to read it out, Megan? Yeah, James asked, um, he recently bought an apartment in Hamilton, Brisbane. It's been great so far, but it's an area that's going to have lots of new apartments affecting his view and he believes his capital growth. So he says, I've probably made what you two would call an error and in, in buying due to the mortgage being cheaper than the ranch. You know, he's looking more at yield. He kind of made that yield decision. Um, he was paying rent in a one-bedroom apartment in Newstead and then he bought a two-bedroom with a river view. But he also bought more for it to be a long-term rental. He bought under 500000 to avoid stamp duty, but also to have a manageable debt. So a few red flags coming up there. Yes. Be interested to hear your thoughts on the idea of buying future rental income rather than capital growth. My view is rents here will hold up due to its location, even if the capital growth will likely not move much or even be at risk at going backwards, although I hope it doesn't. Lol. (laughs) 
All right. It's a great question. There's so much to unpack in it. And so many of our first home buyers are actually not buying to occupy, they're buying to invest, you know, because that's a choice that a lot make. And he's made, and it's interesting because obviously he's been listening to quite a few of our podcasts and he seems to have learnt after the fact. So the poor bugger is probably now having some rethinks. Now, I guess, Megan, you know this area, um, mm. and we'll get to the buying for future income versus capital growth in a minute. We will not leave that bit alone, but let's just sort of tap into what he's talking about. Hamilton, I'm not familiar with that area. What, tell us a bit about it, Megan. Well, Hamilton will probably want to be one of the, the more prestige suburbs, probably one of the highest median price for houses and most sought after suburbs. So very established, lots of large, large um, estates, uh, you know, quite, you know, we're, we're talking properties that can be in the vicinity of six to $14 million. Um, a lot of them are elevated. It is a riverfront suburb to a degree in small areas, uh, but a lot of the elevated areas ha- can have city and river views. So highly sought after, houses are, are, are very expensive in that area. But units, on the other hand, um, the area that he's purchased in is, is Hamilton Harbour and that that's down on the river and it used to be sort of an in- industrial, light industrial area that has been redeveloped into high-rise apartments. There are a lot of high-rise apartments there already and there are a lot more still to go up. So when we look at the scarcity part of the decision-making process here and also the supply part of the 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 decision-making process, he's bought where there is going to be a huge amount of very similar properties come online over the next 10 years. And 10 years is a pretty significant um, time frame here because the North Shore of Hamilton will actually undergo significant redevelopment to become the Athletes' Village in 2023 for the Olympic Games. And what that's going to do is create very specific types of properties that are very, you know, it's future investor focused. So the cookie cutter, very typical two bed, two bath, one car um, with facilities in them, gyms, you know, those sorts of things, but more of the same of exactly what he's got. So there'll be a lot more pushing further along that riverfront um, that may or may not have views and there will be existing properties that will lose their views. So it's it's going to have a very big impact from a capital growth perspective, but also then from a rental perspective, because the more properties you've got that investors purchase that are all the same, um, the more that puts downward pressure on, on rental prices. So I'm not, um, you know, it's, it's certainly not a property that I would recommend um, either for capital growth or for its long-term rental prospects. Um, And I'm talking 10 years plus because these properties will certainly become available after the Olympics to the rental market. Same thing sort of happened in in Sydney back in 2000. The whole whole of Homebush was very much Mm. industrial area that was um, rejuvenated. And we've got, you and I have interviewed... um, the property professor, we've got that episode coming to you in January and that's all about gentrification and there's a real difference between that urban renewal when you get a lot of this massive development and gentrification. They're two very Mm. different things and they make a huge difference in terms of um, how the properties will perform over time. So keep an ear out for that episode. So the issue with this, I guess, is that, and not just this, but anybody who's actually bought a property um, 
you know, they've already got it. So what we're here to do for your first home buyer guide is really help you to make decisions before you buy a property so you don't find yourself in this situation. Mm. Once you have made the decision, you've got two options. You know, once you realise that what you've bought isn't necessarily going to perform for you, particularly if it's not performing in either camp, and that's um, that's a good pun because you're in front of a tent. <laughs> well um, for anyone watching, you'll know what I'm talking about <laughs> or if you listen to the beginning. Um, so once that you know that you have a property that is not going to perform well, then you have two options. You keep it and accept its limitations or you offload it. And one of the things that I've spoken about before in these these uh, podcasts is sort of my my framework of flyer floaters or flops. You know, it's the A, A, B and C grade property. The A grades are flyers, the B grades are floaters and the C grades are flops. Flops should be sold always. You just never want to own a flop. There's no benefit of having a flop at, at all. An A grade it really limits just, your capacity to 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 actually buy a a flyer. Exactly right. And mm-hmm. an A grade property, obviously, you don't ever want to sell an A grade or or a mm-hmm. flyer. If you own a floater, that's one that's going to do okay. You know, you might because of the costs of selling it and the costs of buying again. Because of you know, depending on how old you are as well, and and sort of the gap between now and whenever you retire, if you're in early, if you're young in your 20s or early 30s and you've got decades ahead of you uh, of opportunity to actually, of earning opportunity and also opportunity for capital growth to Mm. really, you know, positively impact your wealth, then you might consider selling a floater and and upgrading to a flyer if you can. But so the philosophy is that you just should always get floaters out of your portfolio because they just, they're like an anchor dragging you behind. You know, the approach here is that you should always get flops out of your portfolio because flops are like anchors. They drag you down and they hold you back and they stop you from getting to where you want to be. And so in this particular case, given what you've said there, Megan, you got in terms of capital growth, you already knows there's issues there, but then the rental is not going to get much of an income anyway. I'd be saying <clears throat> have a very good look at the property and determine whether it's a flop or not. And if it is, you know, make a make a quick decision on that and and get out of it and move on before all that stock hits the market. Mm. And the other thing too is that when you buy for income versus capital growth, well, I think that's fine if you are in your 60s and you're paying cash for the property and you're about to retire. Yeah, it's that different life phase, isn't it? I mean, um, you know, we're talking about a much earlier life phase that he's in at the moment, um, and, and that's that's the wrong time to be trying to look at an income-style property or strategy, property strategy. So at this early stage, with such a long runway, um, it is really about that capital growth um, style of strategy that is going to to put you in the right place to, to move forward. Having a, f- a flop in your portfolio stops you from being able to borrow to, to purchase other properties. So you, you can't actually leverage a flop usually because you don't have any equity in them. And sometimes if you do try and um, get a flop revalued, you might end up with a valuation less than what you paid and you've got to actually put money into it to top up to the LVR for the bank to continue to to allow you to have a mortgage on it. So they they can be really quite risky properties to to hold. I think too, just a final note on this one, is that with capital growth, we talk about the magic of compounding and that's the marvel and, and why property can be so successful as an investment vehicle, particularly when you're borrowing a lot of money. So you get compounding on the money you've borrowed as well as the money you've saved. 
whereas rental income doesn't compound. So if you think about that, that every week, you know, you get a little bit extra rent on a, on a high-yielding property, for instance, and this is not even one of those properties, um, and it doesn't build on itself in the same way that your capital growth builds on itself. And I think that that's a really important principle mm. um, to be thinking. So when buying for future rent, um, I'd rather buy for future growth. Right. Good advice. All Next right. question. Do you want to read it? Obviously, obviously it's quite general, that advice. Uh, Very general. Yes. Christine, <laughs> name change to protect the innocent. Uh, <laughs> my question is, when is it worth using a buyer's agent? So when is your budget too small to afford it really? Are there still benefits in this hot market where any Sydney shack will sell for crazy amounts and it feels like someone is in a better position than you? <laughs> it's not just Sydney. No, it's not. In fact, yeah. even in the membership, we had a question almost exactly the same just this week, um, someone looking in Melbourne. So this is definitely not just a Sydney problem. Yeah. Now, there's a bit of background that um, Christine has given us. They are husband and wife soon to be starting um, school children, uh, hence the urgency to be settled somewhere. So they have got a time imperative been chasing citizenships and visas for 15 years and also flying back to our country of birth at least once a year or getting parents to come over, which eats into savings. Both had decent incomes but and savings around 130000 They're currently living in Sydney's eastern suburbs, living the dream close to the beach and finally accepted that we may have to look um, at the Sutherland Shire last year. It was pretty hard to do viewings with a reluctant three- to four-year-old and also swimming gymnastics on the weekend. Oh, I hear you. Uh, our combined income is probably around 220 and I, as uh, she works part-time, no parent, parent support, both over 40 now, so getting old. No, no, over no. 40 is young. much old. Young, <laughs> young. <laughs> All right, so here's her four questions. <laughs> I love this. Yeah. Do we A, just gamble our savings on crypto or on roulette and grow our deposit? <laughs> <laughs> uh, B, Uber driver, Deliveroo, sell our souls to get more income. <laughs> I love Christine. She's a hoot. So you keep renting and uh, invest their savings. Uh, or D, use a buyer's agent to find us a hidden unicorn house. Mm. Wow. Well, <laughs> I just A&B. don't even know where to start there, oh, but let's knock out. We can knock out A. Yeah, easy. Easy answer. No. We are not into high-risk strategies. <laughs> Don't gamble your deposit. That's the thing. You know, That's gamble right. small amounts that you can afford to lose. Do not gamble your hard-earned savings. So that's mm. sort of an easy one. Uh, Uber driver delivery, sell your souls. Well, you know, maybe. Oh, selling your soul. I mean, you want to keep that if you can. Uh, <laughs> but certainly secondary incomes, people are doing that quite often and, and, and doing it quite well. You've got to Obviously, that has an impact on your lifestyle. So if you've got children and the weekends are already rushed, then adding in um, Uber mm. Eats and, and other, those sorts of things. I have staff who do that on the side and they make some really good income out of it. Uh, just be really careful, obviously, that I think you're responsible for your own payment of um, tax. tax and, you know, there's a whole lot of things you need to be aware of. So what you get in the hand isn't necessarily what you get in the hand. Um, so, so have a, a good think about that and it will add to your tax. So it will have an inca- uh, impact on which tax bracket you actually sit in. The, the other thing with that too is that, you know, you're trying to outsave the market when you're doing things like that. And that's um, that's a hard thing to do when prices are rising rapidly. So, you know, those sorts of, that as an option can be very dependent on the market condition and what's happening at the time. 
then there's option C, which is keep renting and rather invest our savings. And I guess then you've got um, you've got the rent vesting option as well. You mm. potentially could still invest in property. I the pro- problem there is that you are pretty much saying goodbye to owning your own home while the kids live with you. Um, mm. And so that's certainly a decision some people make. But you just sort of, I guess, have to be ready for that and and know that's what you're doing. And the permanency factor is the thing I think that um, this COVID environment has really shocked a lot of people at how many owners have sold their investment properties and what an impact that has had on people's permanency or ability to Mm. really put their roots down and then find something in the same area. So I I think that's one thing for people when they are tossing up between rent vesting and owning their own home is what is my need for permanency in the home? Is, Is it okay if you know, at the end of my lease term, the owner says, I'm going to sell the property or I'm going to move back into it or I'm going to up the rent, but, you know, double the rent because demand is so high. So permanency is an emotional impact on you when you're making these decisions and and emotions do come into it when you're going through the decision-making process. Absolutely. And also there are some lovely tax benefits in owning your own home, you know, and living in your own home. And that is that when you go to sell it one day, you don't have to pay capital gains tax. Um, And, also, um, yeah, I mean, look, but that is a challenge too because if you once your kids get older, then you are way more your roots will be a lot deeper in whatever ever area you're in. So the time, I think the fact you're thinking about this before your your child starts school, it's not there's no accident there. You know, it's definitely mm. the time to be thinking about mm. this. Mm. Um, and then there's option D, using a buyer's agent to find a hidden unicorn. Uh, what do you think about that one, Megan? <laughs> Look, you know, there certainly is opportunities out there that aren't on the open market. And I, I, I think the hidden bit, I agree with that that is a possibility. Buyers agents have access to more properties because of their networks with agents and because they're doing this day in, day out, hour and, uh, on hour. So there is opportunities to find hidden or off-market or pre-market listings. But the unicorn, the <laughs> unicorn is a property that you... Um, had, you know, meets more than your expectations and can be purchased at a price that is more than reasonable. And depending on the market, the unicorn may or may not be able to be found. I, thought, I thought market, a unicorn is a fictional fabled animal and it doesn't actually exist. So that's where <laughs> I worry about. <laughs> well, well, it kind of does, but every now and then, you, you know, you, you do kind of find it. Um, but but the, the problem is that this is not the, the time or the, mar- the, the market to be looking for the exception to the rule. You, you kind of have to make so many compromises at the moment um, in those three Ps, price, position and property. And those who have done our Where to Buy workshop will understand exactly what we're talking about. Um, so the compromises are so great at the moment in, in either or all of those three areas that the unicorn, you know, that, that mythical creature, um, it, it just doesn't exist. So if it is a unicorn because it really doesn't exist, then no buyer's agent is going to be able to help you. So therefore, um, one of the things that makes it your, I guess, your experience in working with a buyer's agent really valuable or you can get the most out of working with a buyer's agent is if you are actually educated and really clear on what the possibilities are for your search. So I guess uh, we'd recommend, of course, that you do the where to buy tutorial and that is learning what those possibilities are for your budget, the property and the position, so that you can actually work out whether what you want is possible. Because if it's not, you're just wasting money with the buyer's agent. 
Um, and then if you decide to rent vest, you can always do the where to buy for investors tutorial. But I think what's really important is you working out what's possible within your budget. Mm. And then if that's a doable, then absolutely you should talk to a local specialist. Um, and you can always reach out to us because this came via email. You know where we are. Reach out <laughs> to us if you need us to point you in the right direction. The right questions to ask so that you know who you're working with. Yep. All right. So Victoria then in August 2021 asked, I wanted to ask a question about investment grade properties. I often hear you mention if a property is an investment grade A, B or C and was hoping if you could please help clarify what you mean by this grading. Now, we did a whole episode on this because we get asked this question so many times and that's why we've included it even though we've done the episode because we just want to, and if everyone hasn't listened to the episode, go back to episode 40. Uh, We talked about flyer floaters and flops earlier. Um, so that sort of gives you a bit of a clue as to mm. what I think about A, Bs and Cs. How about you, Megan? Look, A-grade properties to me are the, the properties that buyers will compete for even in a slow market. They have characteristics that are really popular in that location and there's never really enough of them on the market or just generally speaking either. B-grade properties will find a buyer in a slow market, but it may take a while and there won't be much in the way of competition. Um, they may still be well located and have some characteristics that buyers like, but are a bit sort of, yeah, nothing <laughs> special about them to make buyers fall in love. You know, maybe it's a character house versus a non-character house in the yeah. same suburb um, or the Western rear versus the Northern rear, um, which is you know my, most desirable. So that, that, those, a couple of those things, but C grade properties are properties with serious flaws and in slow markets, these are extremely difficult to sell. But in a hot market, buyers will overlook the issues due to the fear of missing out. You know, that whole FOMO effect of, well, you know, stuff it. If that's all I can get, that's what I'll buy. And they're the only time that those properties will actually achieve any kind of growth. Um, and it's a very limited period of time that you can offload a C-grade property and make any money out of it. So our concern major concern with C-grade properties is you have to be an expert at picking the timing of the market to sell at the peak in order to make any money out of a C-grade property. Yep, you do. And you know what? Good luck with that. I consider myself an expert (laughs) and I haven't always managed to time the market perfectly. So, you know, nobody can do that. It doesn't matter how you... It's not a strategy. Yeah, you're in it day in, day out like me. (laughs) Even then you can't do it. You've got Buckleys. So just don't go buying C-grade properties. No no flops out there, please, people. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Rhiannon, in terms of finding local solicitors and inspectors, how local is local? Great question. Within the same council or just around the same city, not regional? I'm looking at a few different suburbs, some on the opposite sides of the city. Do I need to have solicitors and inspectors lined up or at least compiled a list in each of those council areas and then choose one I need to use once I've decided on a property? And what does that mean for turnaround time when it comes to the purchase? Now, obviously, Rhiannon has done our course because she's building her support crew yes. um, before she does her searches. And, you know, that's putting the steps in the right order. Um, and in terms of accountants, because I'm considering rent vesting, would I just go with my usual tax accountant or is this another one that for some reason needs to be local or specifically focused on property? A few things there. So first is how local is local for account uh, for um Solicitors, solicitors and inspectors. I think for particularly if you're buying in a city. So I think Rhiannon's in Melbourne actually. And so really, 
you know, I'd sort of break it down to there's like suburban specialists and then there's inner city specialists. And if you're looking at buying strata, I think you should find a strata specialist. So the local doesn't need to be the local solicitor. In fact, they're Mm. probably the worst one you should choose because they're much more generalist and they don't necessarily specialise in property. And I think that's a really important thing to to focus on. They just don't have the volume to to be specialists, do they? Mm. So you can do a city-based solicitor or conveyancer. Quite often they will do all over the city. Um, and the suburban ones, if it's a suburban conveyancing firm or a, or a property specialist firm, are more inclined to do sort of houses in, in those sorts of, you know, mm. typical areas. So they've got understanding of the different councils, et cetera, et cetera. So, so yeah, you don't have to go right down, narrow it down to the suburb specifically, but just at least in the region. And certainly if you're buying in the regions. In the regions, yeah, ideally, very important. You know, the, I guess one of the, the biggest property specialists in that area in the region you do need them to understand um the things that go on the pitfalls and and the things that could go you know go wrong because that's basically what they're there to protect you from and Mm. the issues with contracts in different um in different localities so that's an important one i certainly am with strata absolutely somebody who understands buildings we've done a few episodes of recent times on sort of the, the strata due diligence and there is a whole extra layer you need to worry about and for the solicitor to give you the best guidance you do need to get somebody who knows what they're doing mm. building yeah, inspectors mm. i think that what you're after is someone who inspects similar type of properties aren't you i mean brisbane yeah, for more instance. so than than regional or mm. suburb specific sorry well region you've got to think about travel time as well so some yep. inspectors are not going to travel very far from their location so they may actually specialize you might be forced into you know a specialist simply because that's how far they'll travel um but but in terms of of whether one would be better you know in one melbourne suburb or another i don't think there's enough differentiation of inspection requirements it, that would make it worth, you know, <laughs> it, is it a Gold Coast or a Brisbane inspector? It wouldn't really matter. Will they travel? Do they have a good report? Are there photos? What are their limitations? What will they look at and what won't they look at? Um, will, will they, they talk, to you? talk to you is a massive one. Um, can they help you quantify how much it would cost to fix the issues that they've found? Because, you know, I, I don't know how many times I've looked at a building and pest inspection and it sounds terrible but when you say to the building inspector look what's your estimate and a lot of these inspectors are ex-builders right so they're ex-builders who either got a bit old for they didn't want to be on on the tools anymore or they had an injury so these guys often are hands-on and they're 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 really good to talk to Um, and if you say to someone look you know you've talked about this this particular structural issue how much will it cost to fix? And there, there have been times where they come back and gone, oh, between about fifteen hundred and two thousand, <laughs> and it sounds like it's twenty to thirty thousand dollars worth of issues. And, and when you realise that, it it changes the way that you look at it and go, great, okay, well that's that's something I can deal with. It's not a big structural, you know. So having the conversation with them and and if they can help you quantify what it will cost to actually fix the issues that are found, I mean that's gold. The other thing I would add is that certainly in Sydney, for instance, in the inner city, if you get a building inspector coming to look at a Victorian terrace or, a, you know, a weatherboard cottage where nothing is straight, <laughs> they're all wonky, <laughs> right? And that building inspector has been used to, to, you know, inspecting modern houses out in the suburbs. They will always give it a way worse report than a local 
building yeah. inspector who does a lot of those older houses. And so um, that's an important thing because I've read the different reports for these sorts of properties based on whoever wrote them. So you do need, I think the big thing is that the inspector needs to do a lot of the similar type of house. And then you can, then one question to ask is how does this compare with others of the same age? And then if they say, well, it's worse, then you think, okay, I need to leave it alone. And if it's better than or, or just as good or the same, then you average. can have more confidence. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's an interesting thing. When you see average on a building inspection, you think, oh, yeah, it's average. <laughs> Probably the average best. fine. <laughs> now with the accountant. I just say as long as they're good with tax advice and ideally they do understand and um, respect property because mm. quite often an accountant who's good with tax will tell you terrible things to do, like go and buy brand new because brand new off the, the tax because you get deductions. Which and so they're focusing to do. terrible. You got focusing on the short term rather than the long term. Um, yeah, buying a property to get tax deductions is a terrible thing to do. That's not the reason to buy property. So yeah, I think someone who's definitely. Um, very well versed in all the tax um, mm. aspects, but who also will not suggest silly things to you. <laughs> it's very important. <laughs> let's not let's not let the accountant give you property advice. No, uh, and don't go to one of those places that you know those places that just mass produce tax returns. You mm. do need to find someone who's a bit more skilled. Um, to give you some advice in terms of structuring and and all the things that you would you don't know you don't know that's really that's what it comes down to isn't it absolutely our last question is from Michael and this was actually a question that was asked in our where to buy tutorial uh, for investors and it's such a good question that um, and I think quite topical so that's why we've added it into this mm-hmm. episode what are your thoughts on capital growth of townhouses you can often buy in a better area with a lower budget versus buying a house further out and that is one of the benefits um, do people still care about commuting so now he's thinking but what about a house further out do you think that maybe those places further Further out are where people will prefer now due to COVID and lockdowns. What about the change with everyone working from home three or more days a week now since COVID doesn't make the commute less of an issue? So this is a fantastic question because Mm. a lot of that um, decision-making around distance, you know, before lockdown and working from home, well, yeah, people would pay a massive premium to be closer to the CBDs, right? Uh, or closer to their workplace. And obviously the further out you go, it's cheaper because you've got to spend more time commuting and spend more money commuting, et cetera, et cetera. I personally feel like this this work from home movement, it's like a pendulum. You've gone from Mm. one extreme and then now we're at the pendulum swung to the other way where everyone seems to think this is going to keep going forever. But we know it's not, right? So it's going to swing back to the middle. And when it does... This idea about distance not mattering, it's going to matter. It's going to Mm. matter again. So Megan's done some calculations here. Be keen to know what you've come up with. We've actually got an investor who we purchased three properties for and 10 years ago. So I've got three very real examples. And and they did did more of a diverse investment strategy. So um, there was a house that was purchased about eight kilometres from the CBD, which is not a bad radius from the Brisbane CBD. It's neither inner city nor outer. It's kind of that start of the middle ring. So, so, in, so in Brizzy, that's the middle ring. In Sydney, that'd be that sort of 10 to 15k radius would be the yep. middle ring. So to give equivalence and probably Melbourne, roughly similar. Mm, yeah, yeah. So the house was bought for 645 10 years ago. 
Um, there was a townhouse bought in the same suburb for four ninety, and there was a house purchased about a further oh, nine or ten kilometres further out, so about eight, 17, 17 kilometres from the CBD, um, and that was purchased for five hundred five thousand on a bigger block of land. So, so our starting prices are four ninety for the townhouse, five hundred five for the um, house further out, and six forty five for the house in what is very genuinely a gentrifying suburb, long-term gentrification. So those those three properties have now sold in this current market. So we are in a rapidly rising market. They made the decision to sell at a certain point in time because they have some other investments that they, they actually want to do now and that their strategy was always 10 years. Very, very lucky that their strategy aligned perfectly with, with the question. strongest market in Brisbane. And that... <laughs> in 10 years it was so cool <laughs> it's very difficult to get data to compare and I'm actually working on a little project at the moment where I can do this not yeah. for the same client like this but this is fabulous to be able to actually go I know Real these examples. people I know the backstory mm. I know it's this is a mm. fantastic uh case study yeah yeah and they stuck to their investment strategy they did everything they always intended to so the townhouse was purchased for 490 it sold for seven hundred and twenty thousand dollars uh settles in January that, so that's about a $230,000 um, profit in that time. I'm not going to talk percentages. I'm just going to talk straight numbers. Um, so it's just shy of 50% because I can't help myself. <laughs> what is it? Just shy, just shy of 50%. There you go. Uh, the house was purchased for $645,000. It's just sold for two, uh, $1.2 million. And that was in the same suburb as the townhouse. So, Veronica, what's our? Uh, now, I've, now I wish we'd done this. 50 as well. the uh, maybe about 80 or 90%. Yeah, that's much higher. That's, yep. that's a good one. Uh, and the house that was purchased further out for five hundred five just sold for seven hundred and thirty thousand. So that's about a two hundred twenty five thousand um, dollar profit in that ten years. So that's a bit less in terms of percentages than the townhouse. Than the townhouse, mm. yeah. And, and that's that's not um, a story that I'm seeing to be uncommon in Brisbane when you look at well located townhouses. What I will say, though, is it took longer for the growth in the townhouse during this rapidly rising market than it did for the houses. Ah, so yeah. it was, and that's because people start with houses and if they can't afford it, then they go to townhouses. Mm. And we're seeing the upward pressure in prices in, in townhouses, in well-located well townhouses now. We weren't seeing it six months ago. And this also, that outer house might have benefited slightly more unfairly um, because of COVID, whereas Absolutely. if we yeah. didn't have COVID, it probably would have been more of an underperformer compared to the townhouse potentially based yeah, on... Yeah, well, it's just people have just been pushed further and further out mm. um, in this market. So, they're, 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 you know, all of those prices are just really surprising, um, mm. but they're real and they're not outliers. So, they, these aren't wood ducks that bought these houses. These are, these are genuine... Mm. Um, highly sought after, multiple offers. There were eight property, uh, eight offers on the townhouse. Um, there are about thirteen offers on the house in the same suburb, and there are about eight offers on the the, the house that was further out. So recently, highly, or when they bought them? Now, yeah, yeah, yeah. With with these sales, yeah. So uh, the sales that are sort of more than twelve kilometres out. You're right, Veronica. You have to time the market extremely well to sell at the peak with those mm. sorts of areas. But if you go further and further out, and I'm talking now, you know, maybe your Ipswiches or Logans or those sorts of areas where there's a lot of supply and there isn't a lot of character and there isn't a lot of um, population pressure, 
they take even longer and you have to be so, so good at timing the market and hold on um, until the market is rapidly rising in order to get a profit out of them. Yeah, so it takes away your flexibility to mm. choose when to sell. Yeah. It, that's a very interesting. Now, in the last boom in Sydney, so there was a big boom. You guys probably were busy saving your deposits back then if you were actually even thinking about buying a property. But between 2012 and 2017, there was a big boom in prices in Sydney and around about halfway through that point quite a lot of um first home buyers were just and some some upgraders from apartments into houses as well were faced with that dilemma of well i need three bedrooms because i've got a child maybe two children i need a bit of outdoor space because i've got a child maybe two children you know like i i need um i can't buy another apartment you know i i need to and i can't afford a house and they're faced with that decision do i go Mm -hmm. further out or do I suck it up and buy a townhouse? And we saw, and this is so, this is back then, um, you know, we absolutely saw the rise of the townhouse. So a good townhouse in a small complex in a good location with well-proportioned rooms, you know. Quite often townhouses, particularly in inner Sydney and Melbourne as well, you've got a lot of properties without parking, a lot of houses, terraces mm-hmm. and semis and, and cottages that don't have parking because, let's face it, when horses and carriages were the mode of transport, <laughs> they weren't put in garages. They weren't in. parked in the backyard. No. <laughs> the dunny lanes were only wide enough for the dunny cart. They were not wide enough to take a, you know, a Range Rover down. And so, so you know, there's a huge proportion of properties in these small in these inner suburbs that don't have parking. And yet when townhouses get developed, it's very rare that they don't have parking. Quite yeah, often they've got underground parking, yeah. the best ones have internal access. So you actually sometimes get amenities in townhouses that you would not get in a house in the same suburb, depending on where they are located, of course. Mm. So it, once again, the same rules apply though. You know, you don't want to be buying where there's oversupply. You don't want to be buying where, you know, it's a bad location or a busy road or mm. where it's poor quality there's you know all, all the same principles apply but i do think that um a lot of these locations as they become increasingly unaffordable the townhouses become increasingly a good option yeah. for young families and that's what you're going to be thinking about your sort of um you know the the pressure and, and the appeal in that in that market segment is is a really positive thing Mm. And and from a from a rental perspective, you know we 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 discourage people from buying for rental yield. However, just as an aside, generally the the rent yield on a townhouse in a in a good location is better than the rent yield on a house further mm. out. Yep, yep. All other things being equal. All right. Well, that wraps up this Q and A episode. Uh, don't forget, send your questions in. There's numerous ways you can email them. You can. I don't know, jump on Facebook, you can do lots of things. So uh, <laughs> leave Let's a comment. jump onto Facebook. I, I think that's, you know, something that you can you can keep up to date with what we're sending out and, and you know, make sure you like the page so that you can keep up to date with the tips that we are sending out to people regularly. Absolutely. In this episode, we've covered a very small part of our 10-step online course for first-time buyers. If you would like to learn more about the process and how to buy without making a mistake, then head over to our website, www.homebuyeracademy.com.au. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss an episode. And if you like what you've heard today, please give us an iTunes review. Five stars would be wonderful. It will help others find us as well. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found this really useful. And if you have, please share the love with others who you know are in the same boat. We'll be back next week with some more priceless stuff.